Welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal with this series is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. On today's show, our guest is Dr. Mark Cohen, a neuroscientist and co-inventor of functional magnetic resonance imaging. Mark is fascinated by the relationships between structure and function in the human brain and intensely curious whether exploring the brain, the complexities of machine learning, or the beauty of musical polyrhythms and harmonics. We've got a lot to explore in this one. Let's begin. Mark, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity. How are you today? I'm terrific. It's a pleasure to be seeing you again, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. And where are you calling in from today? I'm in lovely Pasadena, California. Ah, the LA basin. It's beautiful there. I know sometimes you've had quite a bit of rain and even snow recently. How's the, how's it going yeah. today? Yeah. You know, there was a funny experience a couple of weeks ago when I looked out my window and somebody had put a mountain there um, because, you know, things look a great deal bigger when the snow is on top of them. But uh, today we're enjoying beautiful sunshine and uh, I personally happen to love the water coming down. We need it. Oh, that's great. Um, so um, I just want to start with a question about your background in uh, studies of the brain, neuroscience, uh, fMRI. What, what drew you into this field originally? I had the terrific experience as an undergraduate of having a roommate who was a graduate student in philosophy. His name's Davis Baird, and he, uh, he went on to be quite the philosopher. But... Um, the discussion around the house was more about Kant than about what to eat for dinner that night. And um, the confluence of my own already very technical disposition and uh, learning about these deeper areas um, really inspired me to, to search for neuroscience and to try and understand meaning in life through the brain. Uh, so you picked an easy topic, right? Uh, you know, the brain is uh, is one of those things that uh, uh, is very, very uh, difficult to look at. I mean, it's just three three pounds of tissue or something like that sitting in the middle of our heads. So, so uh, one of the techniques I know that people talk about a lot is uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which I understand you're an expect expert about. So maybe you could just give us a quick description of how it how it works. Well, I'm happy to say that it was an invention of uh, my friends and myself, this fMRI, and it's, it's a very fun tool. Um, I'm going to give you just a two second about me. Um, I studied the brain at the level of neurons as in my graduate program. And, um, and this involved uh, the slaughter of a great many animals by the time we were done with it. And I realized that the kinds of questions that we could explore with electrophysiology were just I mean, they weren't addressing any of the interesting stuff. The way I, the way I put it at the time is I could put an, an electrode in every neuron in a rat's brain and have no idea how it feels. We, we, we just couldn't get there. So I actually left the field um, and decided to go into medical instrumentation. Um, and I chose as, as, a, as a first target MRI. Um, and MRI at the time was very, very, very slow. Um, you know, 15 minutes to get a single slice picture of the brain, and it required a lot of the people who were in there. Um, so I set out working on the question of how we could make the tool faster. And during the course of a few years in in the um, 
in the business world of MRI, we took the scan times down from 15 minutes to about 32 milliseconds. And at 30 milliseconds, we're now acquiring movies at kind of video rate, um, which you wouldn't think at first glance is all that important when you're looking at the brain. You know, it's just a brain. It's sitting there. You look at it over and over again. And uh, indeed, if I were to show you a movie of the brain, no matter what it is you're doing, you would say, well, this is, there's nothing going on, right? It's just a picture of a brain. But um, it turns out that the signal varies and the signal varies um, in the brain and, um, because of the level of oxygen that's bound to the blood that's going to any particular part of the brain. So hemoglobin is the primary carrier of oxygen, as I'm sure you and most of your listeners know. And hemoglobin has an iron atom on it, um, which bonds to the oxygen. And depending on whether the oxygen is present or not, the iron changes magnetic state in such a way that it creates a tiny, tiny difference that can be exploited in the MRI signal. So we watch the signal fluctuate, but it's fluctuating locally because of the amount of oxygen in the blood. Well, that turns out to depend on how much activity is going on in that particular region of the brain. So neurons require oxygen to work. The harder they're working, the more oxygen they require. And your local blood vascular system is so finely tuned the tiny, tiny areas of the brain, what we call cortical columns, are able to demand more oxygen at the moment. And we can see that in the MRI. So uh, what we can then do is take a, a movie of the brain and study the fluctuations at every tiny location in that movie and compare those to what the person is doing. And what they're mm -hmm. doing might be something straightforward. The first kinds of experiments we did were, for example, have them look at a intense flashing light. Um, mm -hmm. And we can see the brain sh demanding more oxygen and therefore, in this particular case, producing a larger MRI signal when the light is on than when it's off. But we can then go ahead and say, how about think about a blinking light? And guess mm -hmm. what? We can see that. So yeah. um, the the tool has become extremely subtle in the kinds of questions that we can ask. And that's, that's what's yeah. called functional MRI. Yeah. And is it, uh, how finely grained is that ability to see the magnetic state of the hemoglobin uh, uh, cells as, as they're delivering or uh, uh, oxygen to the cells, you know, to the neurons, you know, how finely grained is it? Can you actually see down to the yeah, level so of individual neurons? So we can think about fine-grained um, in, in, in a couple of dimensions. One of them is temporally, right? I mean, the blood flow doesn't change instantaneously. Um, but with some cool techniques and certain tasks, you can get resolution down to a few tenths of a second out of this. So it's pretty good. It's slow compared to thought, um, but, you know, it's pretty good. Um, at spatially, um, we can get the... Um, what we call voxels, which is a three-dimensional pixel. We can get the voxel down to about a half a millimeter. And that's, um, that resolution is close to the size of a human cortical column. And what we still don't know is if we push it even further, 
which of course people are trying. Um, if we push it even further, we don't know whether the resolution of the vascular signal is any better than the size of a cortical column. So when you look at the microarchitecture of the brain, um, you can see local blood vessels that appear to be local to one or two cortical columns. And I, I don't know if you or your listeners need a little more understanding what a cortical column is to make sense of all of that. Well, I guess the question is, the simple question is, you know, how many neurons are there in a cortical column that that particular blood flow that you're measuring uh, magnetic uh, resonance for, you know, would address? I mean, how many Tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's still in a certain sense, um, a fairly coarse graining of the actual neuronal functioning, but it gives you a pretty good idea of what areas of the brain are, you know, are firing off in particular times. And, and in that, you know, uh, the, the f uh, fairly short time frame. what was the time frame again for that? Well, that so, so it, it depends on the use and the, and the kind of task you're doing best case tenths of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we have a long way, way to go yet in terms of diving into the guts of the brain. Are there other techniques that are, that are coming along that are helping, uh, uh, helping to get some, some even more finely grained pictures in fMRI? Oh, sure. I mean, the, um, techniques go down, of course, to single synapses, but, um, but they don't have the kind of field of view that MRI does. Um, you, know, right. you can't see the whole brain at once at the level of synapses. And um, it's not so clear that the functional resolution of the brain for studying at least the kinds of cognitive processes that I personally am impassioned about mm -hmm. requires any higher resolution than we've got. Uh, to, mm -hmm. to study cognition at the level of an individual neuron, I think is a very poorly framed question. Yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, Let's touch on the complexity of the brain itself for a minute in terms of, uh, you know, the aggregates. I, I, as I said, I, I understand it's around three pounds of tissue. And uh, can you sort of elaborate on, like, how many neurons are there? How many, you know, connections does each neuron have? That kind of that kind yeah, of Yeah, so we don't know. Um, the, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, we used to talk about that there are 10 to the 10th neurons in the brain of which 10 to the 11th are in the cerebellum. Um, and because we, we, we just, it's hard, it's hard to count these things. Um, yeah, is 10 to the 10th, 100, is that a hundred billion? 100 billion, 100 billion. Yeah. 100 billion. Okay. Yeah. Or 10, yeah, 10 billion, billion. I'm saying, yeah. Oh, 10 billion. I can do okay. this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of which 100 billion are in the cerebellum. And so there, there's a lot. Um, and each of those neurons is multiply connected um, by what we call synapses um, to other neurons in the brain. And there are, you know, depending on the size of the cell, there are a few, uh, maybe 10 or 12 synapses to thousands of synapses on each neuron. And those um, synapses are... Um, they may come multiple synapses from a single input. One cell might produce 100 synapses onto its friends, um, or there might be one or two, and the synapses connect to each other as well as to the neurons. Um, and then there are a great number of connections which are non-synaptic but functional, um, what um, in the literatures are called effaptic, effaptic connections. So 
you can consider the neurons as connecting to each other by um, metaphorically wires, um, so-called mm -hmm. axons, long pathways. And as those pathways are adjacent to one another, because they're electrical, there's crosstalk between them. And that crosstalk we call a faptic connectivity. And there's support for the idea that that also might change function. So the idea of a, of a neuron firing and sending a signal to another neuron or, or hundreds of neurons or thousands of neurons uh, is a fairly simplistic picture of the electrical activity that's actually taking place. Yeah, the, the, um, the field um, got very, very interested in the idea that the brain is principally an electric organ, uh, which is communicating via single pulses, which you call action potentials that occur over a millisecond or so. And, and certainly that's a huge part of what we do. And because all of our effector systems, all of our motor systems, move your hands, move your tongue, move your eyes, um, follow basically simple electrical um, patterns, it's reasonable to think of as the brain as being a an entirely electrical system, but that that's not the case. And and um, if you consider, for example, the effect of uh, antidepressants on the brain, um, most people don't think that their modulation is principally of some electrical behavior. I mean, they change what the electrical patterns are, but they do something else. Right? Mood is mm -hmm. something else, and um, mm -hmm. all of that takes place in the brain as well. And that so that that means there are there are biochemical there's biochemistry going on in the brain. It's not just electrical signaling. There's a lot of very very complex uh, uh, biochemistry at the same time, right? Very very subtle biochemistry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the you know one of the areas of study. Uh, I think you um, you mentioned uh, psychedelics, for example. Yes. Like how, how, yes. How, um, uh, how they affect the brain is not necessarily sort of having an influence on, I mean, it does have an influence on the electrical activity, but it's really a, at, a, at a biochemical level that it changes and adjusts and changes the way things are working in the brain. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tempting um, to imagine the brain as an engineered system. We, we, we do that. We, we, um, we take whatever is the sort of canonical technology of our time and generation and say, oh, that's the answer to the brain. And, you know, it's, it's vessels of fluid stored up that become behaviors as that fluid goes out at the time when we were fascinated by steam engines. Um, at the time that we became fascinated by electricity, the brain became an electrical organ. These days, people are interested in computation in the brain, but it's, it's a metaphor. And because the brain is an evolved rather than, than an engineered system, it is all of those things all the time. The, the evolution isn't particularly interested in making high fidelity wires to connect one neuron to the other. It's interested in whatever combination of factors create a behavior that's adaptive. And so if those things leak ions or leak chemicals or affect each other, if those things end up making the animal survive and reproduce, that's good enough. So, so evolution loves this kind of complexity. It's just as many, many things out there that it can exploit in order to make a more effective organism. 
So it, it, uh, it, it, since it's a sense, in a sense, growing through a process over time, uh, certain types of structures being pruned, others, uh, others evolving in certain directions and communication pathways developing that, that work, what works in this environment, in this context with these biochemistries, with this electrical signaling, what works that then becomes built and moves on and evolves. So the thinking about the brain as a structure, which, you know, is like building a, you know, you know, building an erector set or, you know, it, it works this way mechanically, the way we tend to, tend to think about things. That's really not getting at the actual function of the brain. It's taking a storyline and putting it on top of the, the very sophisticated and uh, structures in the, in the brain and the way they actually work. Our minds love narratives and our minds love teleology and our minds love the idea of creating meaning. And, you know, I mean, we, we could talk about the basis of that. That's what I'm really currently fascinated by. Um, but I just want to back up for one second about the physical complexity of the brain. Um, we have about 3 billion base pairs in our genome, um, which means we have about 1 billion codons um, of which maybe one to 5% are actually transcribed ever. Um, so we have on the order of 100 million bits of information in, in that genome, most of which doesn't directly encode the brain. And so the, the number of instructions that are available to build this organ isn't anything like the number of neurons in the brain. What we have is some sort of a re repeated motif it's the only way this thing can work. We have a relatively sparse set of instructions which um, create an organ um, that has, yeah, yeah, trillions of connections. But um, I think it's false to think about the complexity of the, of the brain at the level of the number of neurons. I just don't think mm -hmm. that that's mm -hmm. the depth of complexity that's encoded by the developmental process. Right, and one of the things that you mentioned motif, I think that's interesting because that harkens back to sort of the concept and complexity theory of fractal structures where you have branching branching structures where or self similarity at different different levels. There's a similarity in terms of the first level and the second level and you know, so this branching fractal kind of structure is um and it's useful to think of think of that in terms of the blood blood system, you know, the circulatory system, because, you know, you start with the major arteries and then you go down, but there's a self-similarity. So the, the instructions that you need in the genetic code to be able to create those kinds of structures doesn't necessarily, it's not down at the level of the, you know, uh, designing each of the individual capillaries as part of this pr process of fractal branching that, that makes it, uh, the coding maybe a little less um, complicated than you might think, but the end structure can be much more complicated than, than you might think. I guess I don't, I don't necessarily think about the physical structure of the brain as, as having that sort of um, multi-scale self-similarity. But when I talk about a motif, I talk about, um, well, I've mentioned this idea of a cortical column. It's a structure in the brain of a few thousand neurons, um, which is repeated across the surface of the cortex many, many times, but not that many times, maybe, you know, a few million times, right? I mean, it's, it's the number of 
processing units that are in there. A few um, million, yeah. A few million. Um, so the um, one motif that we see in the brain is the cortical column. Another motif that we see in the brain is increasingly interesting to people is what they call grid cells. Um, and this is a um, something that was discovered uh, as people studied the ability of a small part of the brain to help localize rodents in space. Um, but we find that there is another computing motif in the brain, which is heavily, heavily represented. Many, 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 many um, parts of the brain have this grid-like thing. And the, those two computational motifs are capable of doing entirely different kinds of computations from one another. Um, and we don't know how many such motifs there are. We, we, we certainly have seen that those are two dominant ones in the brain. So evolution came up with a structure which handles a certain kind of problem. And the easiest way for evolution to, to evolve more functionality is just to make more of them. You know, we, a finger's a good thing, five fingers are, you know, they're all basically the same and it's useful to have five of them. The columns, the grids, um, you just make more of them. That's the way you get a more powerful machine. Mm -hmm. So they're a proven technique. We might as well repeat it over and over again because it works so well. That's kind of That's like right. the biological approach. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Just yeah. like just um, like the circulating hormones and chemicals, you know, you have something called vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, which, you know, works on the intestine and changes the blood flow there. But it turns out it's also a signaling system in the brain, you know, the, the same mm -hmm. protein. Mm -hmm. uh, mind boggling to use a metaphor that may apply. Um, so uh, talk a little bit about um, how, you know, how does the brain actually function in terms of computing and processing and stuff like that? What, what have we learned about that, uh, that part of the, the brain? Um, I know I had, a, I had a guest, uh, Dr. Justin Youngie, who has talked a little bit about um, systems within systems uh, that uh, communicate to each other. You know, the, his, his specialty is in vision. So he talks about the way the, the you know, the retina, communicates with the optic nerve which communicate and there's there's multiple levels not just a single direction of of the way that the way the processing works yeah we we certainly understand one way of understanding the brain is to think about a layering where a, a given set of neurons is um, communicates to a smaller number of neurons or to or or let's say that one neuron receives inputs from tens to thousands of other neurons. And that neuron has kind of an integrating function. It receives all that information. It, it weighs the inputs of each of those neurons and its output now reflects the weighted inputs of those things. And you can layer that. And what will happen is that at each different level, you have a different abstraction of the data that's coming in from the first level. So if the first level is say, let's imagine is roughly true. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence of photoreceptors in the eye to some part of the brain. So that part of the brain will receive a, a pretty direct representation of the light receiving the eye. Some other set of neurons can look at, um, at maybe every tenth neuron in that first layer. And what it does is produce a low-resolution picture of things that mm -hmm. repeat every 
in the visual field every 10 times, right? Um, and that at some level becomes a Fourier transform. Uh, so it's the spatial frequency of information. And it turns out uh, that spectral analysis is a massively important part of how the brain receives information. Um, and this kind of layering information is, is clearly a, a general structural organizational plan of the brain. It's also, of course, mm -hmm. the way people have decided to do machine learning now, um, mm -hmm. in part mm -hmm. because the machine learning produces answers that mimic our perceptions. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to a second for, for the neuron itself, which is has, has these multiple inputs coming in and it's dis well, I, I, I don't want to use a metaphor of deciding, but there's, there, it can either fire or not fire. It's got an option. But that's, is that a deterministic threshold? Like if it, gets, if it gets 10 inputs, it's going to fire, but if it only gets nine, it's not going to fire. Is that deterministic or is there? Well, cl classically, there's an understanding that if the voltage across the cell membrane exceeds some certain level, or actually is reduced to some certain level, the neuron will go ahead and create an action potential. So um, deterministic is a funny thing, right? It's, you know, there's noise, there's all kinds of fluctuations, um, but it's not anywhere near as simple as if 10 inputs fire once you get a action potential out, um, because first of all, if those inputs are offset in time by tiny amounts, it greatly changes the probability of you having an action potential. But then there's the question of the local electrical environment of that neuron. So whatever is the voltage across the cell membrane depends in part on the voltage outside of the neuron. And so we have large fluctuations in the voltage outside of the neuron, which are reflected in, for example, the human EEG, uh, that modulate the probability of firing. So mm -hmm. there, 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 there's a lot going on there. And of course, there are chemical pieces of this which change the probability of firing. So is it deterministic? I don't know. You know, there's, there's almost certainly quantum level properties that... Mm -hmm. um, that affect this and therefore it becomes stochastic rather than strictly deterministic. Uh, but it certainly isn't simple. Th that's an excellent answer. Thank you. Uh, and it does, does get us down to the, to the, uh, the, the fine, uh, fine graining of realizing that there are quantum processes that will have effects on the way, uh, you know, the way things move up the, the chain within the, the brain. Um, so to, 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 be, to be fair, yeah. nobody has directly detected quantum effects on signaling in the brain. Right, right. Roger Penrose and Stuart Hamrov have theorized about yeah. some of that stuff. But uh, so, so go back to this, the system, the, you know, the, the nesting of systems and, uh, and that interaction. There, there are some, uh, some, some ways that, in, you know, discrete, neuronal uh, firing gets uh, gets sort of filtered uh, as you go up, filtered or interpreted. How would you describe that process of kind of going up across those systems? Um, what we've seen is that if you look at different um, layers of this process, you tend to find more abstracted representations of what's coming in. So the, at, at, at you can find neurons, in fact, you can find many neurons, there's a place you can find them very easily that respond quite specifically to faces. And 
those neurons uh, are clustered together in a small part of the brain. And those neurons could only do that trick by having some layer before them that found maybe eyes and some layer before them that found maybe attachments to other parts of the body and colors and all kinds of other things. So, so um, the ability of a single neuron to, um, to be responsive to a very abstract process like that um, is certainly a reflection of the layering of the nervous system. Right. So each system will sort of uh, in, interpret or abstract and then send it up to uh, another system that abstracts and sends up to another system. So that sort yes. of describes this moving up the chain. Uh, but that that's not just a, uh, as I understand it, not just a one-way flow. There's interaction between between layers and that filtering and you know what's coming in and what's being filtered and um, yeah. you know there's there's a processing that that goes on as well. Some some messages are coming down or something's coming down to saying look for this or look for that. Yes, that's right. Ev evolution again, it's not engineered, um, and uh, so whatever works works. And in our brains, um, there are pretty much as many outgoing as incoming connections. Um, and that goes right down to the level of our sensory organs. You know, there are a lot of projections from the brain to the eye. There are an enormous number of projections from the brain to the inner ear. And so the brain is centrally changing what's coming in and modulating it. Um, so, you know, you can, at the level of the eye, you can think about um, how a camera works. And we have a, a diaphragm in the camera that, changes the aperture depending on how much light is coming in. Well, that's not, that's not the photosensor in the camera. The photosensor reports to some other part of the camera that goes back and says, oh, there's a lot of light here. I'm going to change things. Um, so we do that all over in the layers in the brain. Um, yeah, so, so it's an it's a intensely interconnected process. There's lots of feedback, you know, communication going both ways, you know, down system as well as up system, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly complex network of systems and processes that are kind of working together to um, figure out, you know, where the body is, what the, you know, what the digestive system is at, you know, where all these pieces are at, and then, and then how does it get pulled together? Well, um, I, how does it get pulled together? I, um, I want to. Go back a step and talk just a little bit about something else, and then I'll come back to this pull together question. Um, this notion of layering is pretty well captured by the um, by the computational neural networks that are used in machine learning, and the feedback process of one layer talking back to the layer that feeds it is very well captured by the idea of a convolutional neural network, which is kind of the rage these days. Um, and these, these processes um, to me are fascinating because the objective function that we choose in order to decide whether a machine learning algorithm works well is simply how well it models what we see and do in our own perception. And what we're doing is 
gradually building a computational system that mimics the activity of the brain. And it turns out that that helps us to better understand the processes of the brain. All right. So let me, let me, maybe you can reframe your question so I can unpack it a little bit and, and understand it better. Well, I'm, what I'm aiming at is the, you know, there is a, uh, there's an awareness and attention, a consciousness in the system, you know, what we all conceive of as ourself and what we're aware of and perceive and think. And, uh, you know, that sort of has to sit in some sense at the top of the pyramid of these systems and subsystems, um, uh, because we don't, we can't possibly be aware of or conscious of, of all of what's going on throughout this, you know, amazing complex process. Um, okay. So, uh, um, personally, I don't believe that consciousness sits at the top of anything. It's a, um, heuristic that we like to apply because that's what it feels like. But in practice, that doesn't seem to be what's going on. So for example, um, one of the most profound um, and repeatable properties of the brain is that if we have lesions in certain areas, we simply become agnostic to whatever that region would do. There is, there is no conscious knowledge of it. So um, a, a simple form of it um, involves what is called cortical blindness, where mm -hmm. a portion of your brain in, in the back of your head, that portion of your brain, which receives input of your eyes might become damaged due to, you know, blood flow problems, strokes or whatever. And that will wipe out a portion of your visual field because this back of your brain has a one-to-one -one correspondence with the light detectors on your retina in your eyes. And so if I wipe out a portion over in the back of my brain on the lower right, I, I have no sensitivity information coming from the upper left of my visual field. People with that kind of cortical blindness are simply not aware that that portion of the world exists. They don't, they don't worry about its absence. It just isn't there. Um, and we see a lot of even more profound versions of this. For example, you can wipe out a portion of the brain that's involved in sensitivity for physical motion, and people become unaware of time evolving um, in, the, in the normal sense. So um, the consciousness, if you will, of those processes is probably resident within those particular brain regions. Right? Visual consciousness is in some way resident, I think, within the visual system. And some other kind of consciousness is someplace else. Um, but this um, one of the features of consciousness, the way we experience it, is that it is, um, what's the word I want? Um, it's focused. There's, we could be conscious of kind of one thing at a time. Um, mm -hmm. And all of the other stuff is somehow not part of our of our continuum of consciousness um, and what you right, refer to. I, so, yeah. So we have the feeling that, that our consciousness is a continuum, a continuous process through time. And it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's only there when we're paying attention to it. You know, we, we sort of think of it as, okay, that's what we're conscious of. But you're saying that there are other systems of the brain that are continuing to function, even if we're not aware of it. And if we've had a brain injury where, where the connection to what is uh, conscious uh, is disrupted, that function may still be operating, but it's something that we now can't be conscious of. 
Is that or right? it may not be operating at all, and we therefore can't be aware of it. So, yeah, I was I was thinking about something I've read recently where people with brain injuries could couldn't uh, couldn't consciously do a task like writing something, but their body could still do it. Yes, that's right. We um, there have been some amazing experiments where people who have a form of um, cortical blindness. Um, can still perform all kinds of visual tasks. They just can't be aware of it. So you know you can you can put stuff out there in the world that they can grasp, but they can't see. That sounds like one of these resilient properties of the evolved human brain that that uh, you know you can you can miss the consciousness of something, but the body is still able to do it because it's. That's that's a resilient piece of the puzzle. And, and it begs the question yeah. of the functional significance of consciousness. I mean, if you could do the task without being conscious, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a you, you could become a, a philosophical zombie um, behaving like a human, but not having an inner life. Well, that's that raises an interesting question. Maybe we'll we'll get into it. I want to see if there's anything about the kind of the processing of the brain and the the structures, the nested structures that um, that uh, other aspects of that that you'd like to touch upon before we move on to that other question. I'm I'm impassioned by the concepts of sparsity, and I think sparsity um, relates in a wonderful way to the question of complexity and and mm -hmm. um, and the focus of your podcast. Um, this, there has been an unbelievable amount of progress in the mathematics of understanding sparsity. And I'd like to unpack it for a couple of minutes if I have the time mm -hmm. from you. Please. Yeah, okay. please. So, um, so let's start off with the idea of image compression. Um, I can take a picture with my iPhone and my iPhone, I don't know what I mean, on the order of 10 million pixels, I don't recall right now, um, each of which has on the order of three bytes of data, one for each color, and it gets reported to some computer and saved. Um, but the file that I save is not 30 million points ever. Um, typically, the file that I save is maybe 2 million points, and it's a so-called JPEG compressed image or PNG compressed image. And I look at that picture, and as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing missing, right? Even though I've clearly thrown out 90 odd percent of the information. So how does that work? Well, we have computer algorithms that are mostly spectrally based. That is mostly to look at the frequencies of, inf of, of information in the data, how many bars per degree of information is coming in from there, so so-called spatial frequency, um, and an analysis of the data coming in from the camera shows that in fact there are a limited number of frequencies which have energy above some nominal background noise. So what it's telling us is the information coming in visually is relatively sparse, and it then become a, it became apparent that you could throw out all of the data from the camera below some threshold and still have a perfectly acceptable image. And that's the basis of JPEG compression. It's also the basis of MPEG compression, MP4, all those other things, that the spectral energy is 
what we kind of need in here. So then you can take this reduced set of information and reconstruct the full picture um, absent whatever was in that background, which is typically interpreted as noise. Um, mm -hmm. So people then ultimately discovered that um, you, you don't need to acquire all that information in the first place. So if you're going to throw away 90% of it, why bother taking 30 million data points? And um, people have built what was now called compressive sensing devices with as little as one pixel that produce a full, uh, satisfying visual image. Um, so this is, to me, really quite profound uh, because um, it's also telling us that even through our sensory apparatus, which is incredibly limited, right? You know, one octave of light, uh, of electromagnetic spectrum becomes visible light. It's incredibly limited, our sensory apparatus. Even within that, most of the information doesn't inform us because I can look at a, at a compressed and an uncompressed, you know, and, and a raw image, and they do not look different at all. So what this is telling us is that um, we sparsify the world and then reconstruct a much more dense world from this very, very sparse information. We fill in all the missing data points and imagine that they're connected in some unified whole. And that process, I think, goes on at every level of abstraction in the brain where where you know, people know about the visual blind spot. There's a part of our eyes that simply doesn't respond to light. Um, but um, if you, it, people see things in that blind spot by filling in what is the most likely repeated pattern that would go across that blind spot. That's at a really low level of abstraction. But we do the same thing when we see a complex social situation, which is ambiguous. We see somebody in, you know, with a hood over the head and somebody else with a gun and somebody else who is climbing into a car and being pushed in or so apparently some little, pushed in some by little badge on some little shiny piece on a, yeah. Correct. And, and we build a story. And we, not only that, we can't help but build a story. It's the only way that we can manage that scene. We cannot look at it objectively in the sense that we look at the raw data and don't attach some sort of teleology to it. Okay. And that process, um, to me, begs for this question of the cellular motifs in the brain. That is, evolution found that it was really quite useful to do something analogous to a Fourier transform in order to pick out useful information in the world, and it built a tool for that. And mm. evolution now knows how to make that tool, and it just repeats it someplace else. But yeah. that filling in tool now becomes a whole mode of operation for our brain, and it's a whole mode of operation for our consciousness. Mm. And mm. we imagine a much, a much more filled-in world than we could possibly detect, and all of that information which didn't come into the brain is um, is out there and we imagine we perceive it but we don't you know 
But so, much so, of that so, information. Well, I want to back up a second to the to the issue the issue of compressibility because from a mathematical standpoint, there's there's a limit to how much uh, compressibility there is in the um, the information that's contained in uh, in a data set. No, there's not. Um, well, this Kolmogorov complexity is the is the definition of what is the simplest algorithm that will be able to to reproduce the series of the sequence? So, uh, so there's but, a mathematical that, limit to there's a mathematical limit to compressibility unless you're talking about you know and to contain the, all of the information. If you right, want it's to lo keep all the information, right? But yeah, but I'm not talking yeah. about lossless compression here. Right? Our you're compression about, is lossy. And, yeah. and so, you know, at some level of abstraction, um, all of the information from all of the photoreceptors in our eye could be usefully reduced to one bit. There's light or there's not light. And for some organisms, that's sufficient. And for much of the decision making we do, that's sufficient. Um, right. what's, what's fascinating to me is that it's very, very clear that the overwhelming majority of the information that gets into our eyes is not even processed. It's just yeah. ignored. So this is an example of uh, an evolved biological system. Uh, I think the word parsimonious might apply. You know, it, it makes use of only what is necessary in order to benefit the uh, evolutionary, you know, uh, right. trajectory of this individual, this species. So survival is a matter of, yeah, yeah. Survival is a matter of being uh, as efficient as possible That's in right. making use of the information that is available coming into the sensing part of the organism. You only make use of what you absolutely essentially need to make use of in order to be able to um, react appropriately and survive in the environment. That's so, so that principle of uh, uh, sparsity or parsimony, parsimonious, that principle is built into all of these systems, and especially you're pointing out in the brain and the nervous system. I don't know that it's especially in the brain and nervous system. I mean, you, you know, we have uh, we have taste detectors for the things that inform us about the things that are useful for us to know about the world um, and whether or not we could sense those tastes or smell or anything else. Um, this sort of efficiency is, is absolutely a principle of evolution. Um, and, you know, when we think about even the senses, um, we are aware of animals having a broad array of senses that we simply don't have. So, so it's very clear that biology can build a machine that can detect the polarization of light because birds can do it. It's very clear that, um, that biology can build something that can detect electrical fields at a distance because, you know, fish can do it. And biology builds infrared detectors and, you know, incredible numbers of smell detectors that we cannot even begin to make sense of because we don't have built into our system a knowledge of those things uh, and, mm -hmm. and a knowledge in, in what I tend to think of as evolutionary knowledge. That is, mm -hmm. our, our system um, physically is aware of these things around us that are important to our reproduction. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you about the comment you made about um, 
the narrative uh, aspect of this, a, a, uh, in terms of the compressibility and the sparsity and pulling information. And uh, it sounds a little bit like sort of painting a picture out of very little information. Mm -hmm. And so uh, expand on that a little bit. And then does that go all the way up to our conscious, you know, our, our conscious activity is really making a story about what it is that we're getting an input. So it appears to be continuous. We, we, uh, we perceive ourselves as having a, uh, you know, sort of this continuous, um, identity. We, I, we, we identify that with our visual field, you know, um, but it's really a narrative that's created uh, by us to make sense of what's coming in. I think you've expressed it just as I would. I mean, I, I think that that's exactly what I'm trying to say. To me, this arises from the from at the lowest levels of information processing, evolution found a way to to build to do this filling in, right? We we can see the filling in at the level of the photoreceptors in the eye, um, and we can see the eye sparsifying information that it comes from the visual world. For example, the eye takes uh, continuous light data and forms lines um, because of um, the mutual. Um, uh, inhibition of adjacent neurons. I mean, go right into this pretty easily, but but what that does is produce an edge detector, and the edge the edges mm -hmm. are what's presented to our brain. Um, we we abstract information from the world by sparsifying it all the time, um, mm -hmm. but we also enforce on the information that we receive some level of continuity, and that. Um, that expression of continuity is a motif of information processing of the brain that is almost certainly expressed in a motif of cytoarchitecture of collections of neurons um, that do this thing. So if you have a, a continuity detector, say in the visual field that is built out of a cortical column that knows how to do that, the brain can build another, another cortical column that receives information from these lower levels and enforces some different abstract continuity on it, right up to whatever it is that we think of as conscious perception. Um, so you know, we see that all the time. For example, um, if we try and look at our dreams, um, somehow the, the individual events in those dreams are very, very often just sort of random seeming, right? Mm -hmm. but, but, the, but the dream itself doesn't have that experience to it. It's as though... It's as though all these bits and pieces of your information become connected. Yeah, and it's and when we wake up in the morning, we think about it. It's just a little too weird to hold on to. In some yeah. sense, it's a, a different mode of consciousness that uh, no longer works when we're awake. Um, yeah, which 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 tells us um, that there are a lot of ways that we could interpret that world. And um, you know. It, it, there's the LSD experience. So, so yeah. in my youth, right? Um, but um, one of the often reported phenomena from LSD is that people perceive a connectedness to events in the world that's different than their ordinary life. You know, that, that, mm -hmm. that when that guy on the stage hit the drum, it's somehow connected to the color of the hair of the woman next to you. And it's, it's perfectly plausible to you in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. 
And what it, what that kind of tells us is that there are more or less an infinite number of ways of connecting all of the events in the world to some sort of a narrative. But even under these conditions of profound disruption of normality, there still is this enforcement of continuity. You know. So how do you how do you make a distinction between a hallucination and uh, and and a real perception? How does you the brain do that? You don't. Uh, okay. I mean, there there isn't there isn't a distinction. You know, you, you you could go back and say something that we canonically call hallucination is more or less something that um, is not adaptive to us, and um, it's it's a it's a testably false um, version of the external world. It's testably false because mm-hmm. if I believe that that um, there is a, a pond of water at the edge mm-hmm. of this cliff and I walk over it and fall down a cliff instead of, you know, put my toes in, that's a testably false hypothesis. So, so two principles. One is it's adaptive. Is it, a, is it an adaptive perception or narrative? And the second is a testable. And testable narratives is, is what science is all about. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. But, but certainly what... what we what we have as a conscious conscious experience of the world is hallucinatory. Okay. Well, let me ask you a follow up on that on that exactly. I think you're probably familiar with the Libet experiments about reaction times and conscious awareness of things. And part of the the uh, uh, the the speculation or the claim of that, those experiments were that since the uh, since the actual uh, functioning of the of the brain uh, is going along faster than it takes the brain to be conscious of the things that it's experiencing or doing, that that was uh, that was a, a that's an argument that um, we we do not make decisions on the basis of conscious rational choice. In fact, those choices are made, and then the conscious mind makes up a story about those choices. Yeah, kind that's of interesting. Denial of free will is sort of the, 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 you know, denying free will because it seems to be a deterministic process that happens before we are aware of it in the conscious mind. So there are a million profound results of the Libet experiments on time. Right? I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're just multifaceted. But I don't think that, I, that I'm comfortable with saying that all of consciousness is ex post facto. Um, in fact, we can plan things well in advance of doing them, days in advance of doing them, and then execute that plan. And that, um, that's certainly expression uh, of the idea that conscious awareness can do things well into the future, and it's not just ex post facto. Um, mm-hmm. our, our conscious awareness of what decision we somehow made uh, – I don't know if that has a lag or not. I don't know if that means anything anymore. Um, you know, so suppose I'm planning my uh, my next ski trip today, um, mm-hmm. and in my mind I'm going through you know the various things that I'd like to do there. Um, certainly, the motor process of sitting down and buying the ticket happens well after I've thought about it, but whether I was aware of having made the decision at the very same moment I made the decision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a comfortable answer. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I want to 
uh, uh, change gears a little bit because we're we're uh, we're getting close to the end of time. That's here. too bad. Um, I'm enjoying this. I, I know it's too bad. I am. I am as well. And and uh, uh, and that relates to uh, okay. So we have this situation where you know the brain is incredibly complicated. It does these. You know, does the compression sparsity. It's you know, syst- multiple systems. Are uh, are we are we going to be able to get this figured out, or is this something that we're we're kind of always going to be chasing, chasing something? It's never going to be never going to have an answer. I mean, I I know from my uh, my mathematical guess that we're never going to have a computer model that exactly mimics the brain because it was not a computer power in the universe, but um, but are we going to are we going to understand enough about this process to say, yeah, we, we understand how all this works? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I, and it's interesting because I, I just had this conversation with one of my colleagues in Germany um, last week who um, is pretty much convinced that we'll solve the brain in his lifetime. And he's, you know, 10 years younger than I am. And I, I mean, there, it's just not even possible. It, it's um, in so much as. Let's go back to this question of evolution and having built a brain that's only capable of certain things, right? And among the things that it is simply not capable of is understanding what it what it's unaware of. And we we don't have the tools. We don't have the, the intellectual tools, um, even if we end up with the instrumental tools to measure you know, every physical process that we can find, um, that's not going to give us the tools to conceptually understand, to understand what we have. I I don't think we solve the brain ever. Yeah. So um, the follow-up is, how do you feel about that? This, the fact that there is something that is potentially knowable and it's, we can't reach it, we can't know it. And, and you're working in this field. So is there a sense of, uh, you know, what, how do you feel about that? I'm in love with it. I, I, I'm in love with it. it, it it's, um, you know, many people uh, want to say that science is so fun- fundamentally reductionist that it takes the wonder out of the world. Um, but that's exactly the opposite. What, what, what you do is you look and look and look and you get more trans by the beauty of the of the system and the and the the elegance of the system and and uh, yeah I mean I just I love the infinite complexity of the brain oh that's great uh, do you have a, a, a kind of a spiritual uh, vision or a religious tradition that you feel comfortable with or that sort no. of fits with that no, hmm. I, you know, there's there's a philosophy. I'm not going to call it a religious tradition that's associated with Buddhism that um, that speaks to hmm. me. Um, hmm. But I'm not. I would never be the kind of Buddhist who writes little messages on a piece of paper and burns them in order for the spirits to whatever with them. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a magical part of that religion also. Um, but no, there's sufficient magic in the in the world as I understand it as a scientist to keep me busy and spiritual for many lifetimes. Yeah. Um, so now a final question. Um, uh, have you, have you experienced anything? Well, I guess if you took LSD, you might have uh, some, some events in your life that, uh, that, you know, seemed 
um, mysterious or transcendental or, you know, gave you a sense of this, this, I don't necessarily understand it, but it's really important. It's been important to my life. Um, you have an experience you'd be willing to share? You know, I, I knew, of course, that this is one of the questions you like to ask of your guests. And I really searched for it. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen UFOs. I haven't been touched by, um, you know, what I perceived as ESP. I mean, you know, the, the, those things haven't happened to me. Um, uh, but I've found many, many, many experiences in this life that tell me that it's a great deal richer than my ordinary day-to-day. -day. And yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned hallucinogens, dimethyltryptophan, DMT is the is one of the most profound experiences that I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, in, in the end, in helping me to better understand the brain, right? I mean, it's a, it's a physical interference with the processes of the brain. It does very specific things to perception. Those very specific things that it do to, to perception inform me about how the machine works. I mean, I love that stuff. Um, and, you know, at the risk of being cliche um, about this, everything about the world is mysterious, transcendent, and mystical. Um, everything. You know, and, and the even the fact that we can think about it is transcendent and mystical, mm -hmm. right? Rather than mm -hmm. just detect it. And we can think about it and we can talk about it and we can communicate with each other. Even even in the face of sparsifying and parsimonious patterns in the brain, we can we can connect with other people. Even um, this concept that there is such a thing as other people. Um, which we understand as being different than other bodies, right? I mean, that's yeah. a that's a remarkable feature of of the world we either live in or create, and I don't know which. Yeah, yeah, Mark, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time and your expertise and your willingness to uh, to share. And um, maybe together we'll make sense of complexity. Thank well, you. Well, it's it's a pleasure and an honor to be part of the series of really interesting people you bring to your podcast and uh, I, I had a lot of fun great thank you thanks for joining us on this episode of making sense of complexity that was cool our next episode will feature dr klaus landsman professor of mathematical physics at radboud university in the netherlands and winner of the spinoza prize in 2022 in this episode we'll explore the complexity of quantum physics and the mathematical innovations it has inspired so to be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that one. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Adventures, PlankSip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.